All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Ferrand and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith Podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is the ever- Cunning and magnificent, <laughs> <laughs> Greg Ferrand. I'm so glad you uh, said Greg, cunning and magnificent. Those yeah. are my two favorite adjectives, and I was hoping that you'd apply them to me. So thank you. Yeah, feeling I'm feeling radically cunning and deeply magnificent. So thank you. Out <laughs> of the gate, thank you. I could sense it. I could sense it. Good, right on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, cool. No, so I'm I'm excited uh, for this episode that we're about to share with people. We, uh, as you know, because, sorry, I stepped away from the mic. That's a podcasting no-no. But as you know, uh, we recently, and by recently, I mean five minutes ago, (laughs) finished recording a conversation uh, with Carmen Butcher, who has a brand new translation out of Practice of the Presence by Brother Lawrence. And it is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, I absolutely loved it. Um, I mean, she brings so much to it. Uh, first off, first woman to ever translate practice of the presence. Second, she's a woman of color. Third, she does the uh, we talk about this extensively and why she made this choice, but she does the uh, they them their pronouns for God. Uh, it is a wonderful translation. It was a it was a great conversation. I'm still um, I don't know. I love it. <laughs> I had so much yeah. fun. Carmen was, was- awesome. She was amazing. And the reason that we're now recording the intro after the interview is because we got so excited in our conversation with her out of the gate that we pretty much just dove right in without any introduction of who she was or why we were talking to her, just because we were so thrilled. And I would say this, I mean, and Josh, maybe you resonate, but uh, she felt she was so authentic, vulnerable and present and watching this, you know, she's a professor at Berkeley. So she's a genius uh but she she is a professor with so much heart and her story of her embodied spirituality flows out from the beginning and 
you know, just to me, what, what just is popping and radiating from the entire conversation is just this authentic enthusiasm and joy that is not detached from reality. It's born out of suffering and hardship and pain of her own journey, but then how it's interwoven gorgeously within her journey that she has experienced the divine in a way that's been so transformational. And then that led to her translating this book um, through that lens. So uh, we're recording this now at the intro because I got so excited when, when you, for, if you buy this book, which we encourage everyone to buy this book, it's, it's fantastic. And I, I'm not just saying that because she was our guest. No, it's really, in, it, this book's unbelievable. But one of the things out of the gate, it, she has got endorsements, you know, from Richard Rohr and Mara Bastar and Cynthia Bourgeau and Rob Nash and Walter Brueggemann and Andrew Harvey and uh, Kaya Oaks and Barbara Brown Taylor. And the list goes on and on and on. Like th this book has been endorsed. And I just was asking her about how in the world did you get so many endorsements? And they're so radically enthusiastic from across a spectrum of kind of theological and philosophical uh, uh, positions and and perspectives. And that's what and that just got us that little question <clears throat> out of the gate got us off and running at a thousand miles an hour. And we don't slow down. It goes a thousand miles an hour for an hour and a half. And I know it's a long podcast, but it's worth a whole listen because what she's sharing it is just full it's like a freaking diamond mine i mean she just is we're diving deep in the into the fucking earth and she's just pulling out diamond cart after diamond cart and then we just spend a little time just looking at the facets so th this is one of my favorite interviews it's absolutely gorgeous yeah i agree it was fantastic it was a lot of fun um you know as as <laughs> as you're saying she was she was sharing and and being open and and vulnerable and Really, I think she demonstrated um, like the whole point of uh, Brother Lawrence's book, which is this lived sport spirituality. Um, it's like almost if I can use this phrase, like an ordinary mystic, you know? Yeah, yeah, right on. And Perfect. just Carmen, by sharing her, just by being herself, being here and speaking with us, was living the message that Brother Lawrence, the translation, yeah. you know, was trying to communicate. So it's it's really cool, kind of meta but I, I love it. And like the whole time when she was speaking and sharing, um, I almost, it was like, I had Snoop Dogg in my ear, just like going like, <laughs> drop it. Like it's hot. Drop it. Like it's hot. Drop it. Like it's hot. <laughs> well, and then, and then at the end, and if you can hang it to the end, which I think everyone, once you start listening, you're going to listen to it. But at the very end, you know, we're about to wrap up. And then she says, Hey, is it okay if I sing this little chant for you? But, and I think both of us were like, dude, yes bring the chant we're, we're gonna mute so we don't have any potential ambient noise and then she ends with this articulate gorgeous expression from her heart that flows through her voice as a spiritual practice and it's absolutely beautiful so then i think both of us were mentioning yes please drop it like it's hot at this moment <laughs> yes, so, and, you know, awesome. as a 50 year old man i feel very comfortable saying that drop it like it's hot it just feels very natural for me to say that yeah, I, I'm glad that you can feel that way. <laughs> oh, no, it was so great. And the song was cool. Um, and I, I, I think that's a, a record, too. I think that's the first time uh, somebody has ever sung on Rethinking Faith. So congratulations, Carmen. Well done. You, yeah, well done, absolutely. you. So many cool firsts. First woman to translate Brother Lawrence. First woman of color. And first person to sing on Rethinking Faith. That's pretty, 
That's probably her that's... greatest accomplishment. I would say that's probably yeah. her greatest accomplishment. <laughs> that is Carmen's greatest accomplishment. <laughs> Carmen, you can text me and tell me what you think about your is new that greatest, your greatest accomplishment. accomplishment? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, listeners, this was such a, I don't know. I, I just feel like I'm still radiating. Like it was just such a joyful and fun uh, conversation that I'm excited to share. So any other any other thoughts, Greg, before we uh, or just before again, Marty drops it like it's hot and throws yeah, in right. the conversation? Just just knowing that, that where it picks up is you you don't hear my question. Uh, tell us about this insane endorsements and how you got those. And then so the conversation flows right from there. So that's the beginning point for just for a little context. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks for the context, Greg. Carmen, thank you so much for hanging out. Listeners. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as Greg and I did. Uh, and without further ado, check this shit out. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I, yeah. There you go. <laughs> it's going. But yeah, keep 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 the conversation. So Greg. you, re- I mean, you really have hit on something, Greg, because I have really. My editor said, we'd like to fill up a few pages with endorsements. And I was like, holy, you know what? That is like, she wanted like four, four, three pages or so. And so all of a sudden I started asking people during the pandemic and they just, they kept, I mean, a lot, most of them said yes, you know, and some were busy, you know, or something or had an illness because it was the pandemic beginning. But it just gathered momentum. I, I really am astonished myself. But at the same time, it was kind of like um, this book very quickly became more than a book. I've never done a book like this before. It became about friendships and relationships. It was almost as if it's a um, time release, like medicine of some sort, where Brother Lawrence drew me in, which is a whole nother story. And then his essence in me working with him just kind of made all these new relationships in my life. All, all I mean, because it's not just somebody endorsed it, but it's like you started to have a relationship with some of these people that like Martin Laird has been my hero for like forever, like literally forever. And I think I've read, you know, I'm one of those people if somebody writes a book and I start reading that one book, all of a sudden I fall down a rabbit hole and then I just look for all the other, it's just like, I have to eat it. You know, I just have to just get it. And so having conversations with um, Martin Laird, I'm I'm the kind of person to just seeing his email in my box. (laughs) I would just kind of levitate, but his, his um, conversation, I don't know. These these endorsers helped me to see what Brother Lawrence was about even more because I've always kind of suffered from being able to see things about myself or like I'll even forget what I've done in the past. And um, Martin Laird really did and all the others helped me to see. And the other thing was I was really hoping we could get voices from all different backgrounds. And I'm pretty baby Huey because, you know, I teach I I teach at Berkeley. That's mostly 17 to 20 person classes. And I just kind of keep my head down and teach students to honor their voice. But um, as I started reaching out to different people, I thought Brother Lawrence would like this because he said he's of no party. 
you know? And uh, so I'm really grateful for everyone who took time out of very busy schedules uh, to help me. And, and, and it's so fun because some of them would say like Jamie Smith said, Oh, I'm so happy to meet you. And I was like, Whoa, I'm so happy to meet. So it was really like about like friendships. It's just been, it's been overwhelming in the best ways, but it was a lot of work to get 23 endorsements. <laughs> and there were some no's, you know, there were some no's, but um, it was just the, the response. I was like, Whoa, I feel like I came out from under a rock. <laughs> I'm just kind of like the rock of the rock of my past trauma, the rock of my sort of being raised uh, in uh, the Southern Baptist church. And um, you know, that's a whole nother story, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I don't know if you want me to add on to that just a little bit or uh, like, well, and, yeah, because my, and maybe just, what, just, just, just to, to kind of name it as we frame this. So yeah. uh, this is uh, 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 Carmen. She is a, the translator of a book that's coming out practice of presence, which of course is a famous brother Lawrence uh, work. And I've, Josh and I have so many questions. Okay, first of all, we have Josh and I are totally geeking out. As we said earlier, we're totally geeking out that we're with you. Um, and you could not uh, translate a book that more resonates with our bones and our own journeys in terms of uh, c cultivating an authentic spirituality from the inside out. There, oh, and there's so many facets to that that we'll unpack. But again, we, we kind of like to start at the beginning with uh, no one is coming to this just academically, right? You, you, in, in your journey, uh, as you said, you mentioned you were from a conservative tradition. Um, and through your story, you reached a place of, and then I want you to tell it to how you discovered Brother Lawrence, which because it's such a good story um, at the first time. But, you know, then no one writes a book without, there's a cost to it. There's a, you know, there's so much work to it. And so it's got to be born to me, especially your translation clearly is born from the inside out, born from your heart and soul and guts. And it's a, it's a work of passion. So to, I guess it's helpful for us to understand. I, I don't just want to begin with your book because I think it's helpful to understand who you are and why you did what you did. What's your story that, that led you to this place to write, to, to, to give your heart and energy to this work? Well, I'm just so excited to be here because I, listen to you both talk about your stories and bringing in your experience. And I think what you're doing is just amazing. So my story is that I was raised in a conservative, um, I was brought up in the Southern Baptist church. Um, there were a lot of individually really nice people there. I'm really grateful for how great thou art and some amazing hymns, you know, and uh, yet at the same time, one of my um, pastors told me once that, I was going to graduate school and he said, well, you can be a teacher, but that really is about the limit of what you can do. And he wasn't meaning a teacher of a university or anything. He, he meant like K to 12, which is absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, my brother teaches at a middle school, but what I mean was that was it. I, it wasn't like a choice for me. He was like to be in the scripturally, biblically um, approved sort of path and to get married, if you plan to do that, because I was, you know, then like 28 or so, and um, I was really approaching my sell-by date, <laughs> because people would look at me, uh, all my really nice neighbors out in the country where I lived in Northwest Georgia, 
I would come back from graduate school and I would have studied and taken, you know, because I have uh, severe anxiety that I deal with, with different embodied practices, let me say, like right before the podcast, I was lying on the bed with a yoga mat underneath me trying to stretch myself back open, you know, and breathing, breathing is my friend. But I would, uh, you know, go to graduate school, have my eye ticks, didn't sleep at night, had insomnia because of just different things. One was childhood trauma. Another was uh, church trauma type of things. And I would just think to myself, how, how am I going to like go forward um, with this? So one of the ways is Mary um, Oliver is one of my saints, the saints in my firmament. And I was sort of laboring under the supposition that I had to be good. And, you know, you cannot be good. I mean, it's, I mean, I've tried, at least maybe some people out there can, but I, I can't. Um, And so one of Mary, so Mary Oliver talks about going out into nature and it saved her life. And that's also what happened to me. I would go out from um, sort of very dysfunctional home life growing up and um, go out into the woods. And then Mary Oliver also writes, and you know, this is the scripture of Mary Oliver. She says, in wild geese, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And I keep thinking how animal has the word anima in it for soul. So in other words, I, I really came to the practice of the presence to go back to your question, um, Greg, such a good question. I actually came to it before I knew I was doing it. So because of my uh, trauma and different uh, uh, abuse that I have experienced in my life when I was growing up and, you know, being told you could be a keeper of the nursery, but could never step up uh, to a pulpit. I was practicing the presence before I knew I was. And this was a gift to me from a God who loves us all, who gives us these sorts of gifts. So actually, <laughs> how did I hear of Brother Lawrence? It's not so, um, it's not so, what do you call it? If you were putting a Snapchat filter on it, it's not so shiny and everything. It's more like that little piece of paper that gets stuck to your shoe when you're walking down the sidewalk. It might even be toilet paper. It's more of a that kind of story. So I read a little bit of Brother Lawrence growing up because you can't escape Brother Lawrence if you're raised in um, sort of Georgia and, you know, guidepost, Billy Graham and um, Reader's Digest sort of home that had, had all that. And then I met with my editor who kept, who was pin pestering me for 10 years to do another book since the cloud. <laughs> but honestly, my dad died. My family moved across country and I just didn't have the bandwidth. Then finally, during the pandemic, she said, she sent me a little message on social media and said, Hey, you want to meet up to talk about a book? And I was like, yes, I think, but I was very hesitant because I was teaching online. It was the pandemic. And at the end of this very long list of things that she said, you could do this. What about this? She said, and then there's brother Lawrence and something in me went like a tug, like really like the first time I saw uh, my husband, there was a tug. It's exactly the same thing in, well, exactly pretty much, you know, not exactly, exactly, but very in the same category of an invisible tug of love. And 
So I didn't tell her anything because I thought, what if Brother Lawrence's theology isn't healthy enough for me? Because um, I've had very, very traumatic experiences in the church. Uh, and I thought I can't translate, you know, it's so intimate translation. It's like giving this, it's like giving Brother Lawrence a hug for so many years. <laughs> and so I started looking at the French. Thank you, National Library of France, for making that book and the other books in this free. I started looking at the 1600 uh, books, uh, 1692, 1694, and, and so on, 1699. I started looking at those and I fell in love. I just kept translating because it was really like eating. It really was like cherries. It's like somebody brings home cherries from the grocery store and you're like, I got to wash those babies and get them in my mouth. It was like eating those fresh cherries from the store. And then I started looking at the other translations because one thing is when you translate, you want to see what everybody else has said. And you want to have a billion dictionaries open from the 1600s and before and you want to have the Oxford English Dictionary open and you want to read history books and you want to as much as you can. But I started noticing that Brother Lawrence was so much way cooler and more open than the translations that the translations were more binary, like good versus evil. That really spoke to me because as a kid growing up, I tried to be good, but every time I'd say damn or shit or today it would be fuck because that's one of my favorite words. Um, uh, I try not to say it all the time, but it is one of my favorite words, uh, me and Anthony Hopkins, apparently. But every time I would look at the translations, which I was very grateful for, I would see Brother Lawrence wrote that he stumbled. Really, the French verb is tomber for tumble. He would say he stumbled when he did harm to himself or others. He didn't say he used the word sinner once. And the words he did. Now, others, now Joseph may bring in, you know, Joseph is a priest and he's more a nobleman type of person. But he uses sinner once and it's P-E-C-H-E-U-R in French. And that comes from the root for foot. So I bet even when he used Peshur, he was thinking of feet. And he's really somebody who was injured in war and limped. And so I discovered that Brother Lawrence was not binary. He was a mystic. And I just didn't see that in the past translations, even though I really respect them and they're good, you know? And so that's why I got involved in it. So then I met up. I didn't tell my editor because I'm always, my inside life is so different from what people see on the outside. People see on the outside, you translate the cloud and stuff, but I literally am a really nervous person. Like I had to take some bentol before this interview <laughs> because I get stomach. I, I have things, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I, I just do, but I'm, I, so I didn't tell my editor because I thought, what if I can't do it? I've never translated French before, much less early modern. And so it just turned out to be this thing that blew the hinges off my soul in the best of ways because he's so gentle and he helped me see me like I have shadow self, you know, like everybody else, but also I had gold in my shadow. I couldn't see. I'll be honest with you. I really love what y'all, one of the reasons I love what y'all are doing, y'all get on here and Josh talks about seeing the, I don't know if it was NFL draft or NBA draft and crying. Okay, and showing emotions. And Greg, you talk about having uh, difficulties growing up, and you talk about cocaine, and and I and you talk you talk about your feelings, 
And I'm like, I never felt like I belonged in church. I, growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, I, I never felt like a whole human being. I felt like I was worthless. That's not good theology. You know, I had a conversation recently with Matthew Fox and uh, for the Mystic Summit, and he was saying how he's trying to glue Genesis 1 back into the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament for Christians, where it says the original blessing of, and the earth is good, and everything and everyone in it. And I've been spending most of my life with the help of kind friends, kind husband. I've been trying to reclaim my sacredness and to treat others that they're sacred also. So what happened is I got into Brother Lawrence and he turns out to be so calm. He is the calmest person I know. And he's dead. Have you heard? I really have a hard time believing that sometimes. <laughs> he seems he seems so alive to me. He really does. But I don't know if that answers your very good question, but um, that is such such a good question. Yeah. No, I, it, it most definitely answers Greg's very good question. And in a way that I think fits so perfectly, uh, rethinking faith, because you didn't just give some kind of like academic answer, but rather you gave like, here's my embodied experience, which is that's really what Greg was asking. <laughs> like, that's yeah. what that's what we want to know about, because that's interesting, right? That's, you know, Rob Bell once told me he was like, dude, people are are infinitely interesting. And if you live your life with that assumption that people are infinitely interesting, then like your life will be way better. <laughs> so he should. Okay. Because yeah. like, I remember you also said, he said once when you were interviewing him, just let go of all your notes and sink down into yourself. Right. So that was what I was concerned with, with the translation was, and, and my editor even asked me at the end of it, she said, do you mind to write up your translation philosophy? And I was like, I have a translation <laughs> I said, do I have a translation philosophy? And so because she, so this is how I go along in life. I have relationships that help. I'm almost blind. And I, I don't, I say this with great respect for people who are physically uh, blind. And I have friends who are physically blind, but I, there's a part of me that's blind about myself. And so when my editor Lil said, do you, do you, why don't you write up your translation philosophy? I didn't dare tell her, but I didn't have one I didn't know, but it was embodied, that embodied thing. <clears throat> but I have to tell y'all both too. I still have deep down, sort of at the root of me, and I'm always having a sort of love-hate relationship with it. The part of me that thinks if Bernard McGinn read this book, what would he think? <laughs> or 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 Martin Laird before even before even I dared reach out uh, to those two gentlemen. So I do have a part of me that is like, um, but it's also me. I, what I'm trying to say is it's, the, the reason that I have a love-hate relationship with it is it's not just uh, Martin and uh, Bernard who really well uh, embody academics, but it's, there's part of me that's going, is this accurate? Is this accurate? What are you doing here? But the interesting thing is all the past translations of Brother Lawrence have no translator notes. It's just, this is it. And that's fine as far as it goes. But every translator makes decisions. Every translator makes interpretations. Every translation could have a translator's note. Notice I didn't say should, but could. To explain, 
Okay, so here it says everyone or tous in the French, and I'm going to say men. <laughs> so, so, so I'm just going to say I identify as a woman, and um, I understand because I grew up in the era where I was always told if you see the word men, and even Alfrich of Innisham, who I translated, an old English uh, Benedict dude, um, when you when you see men, you just got to understand, girl. <laughs> that means you too. But I'm going to tell you from where I'm sitting in my little, you know, tennis shoes, it doesn't feel very like it's me, <laughs> you know, and, um, and that just, you know, I just thought to myself, Brother Lawrence is all about love and he touched my life. And then maybe we could offer this to the world because the other thing that's like the toilet paper stuck to the bottom of your shoe which I have had happen to me once teaching on a college campus, um, but, and we won't go into that, um, is that you think to yourself, will the publisher want it? Because see, you translate it, but then you have to write a proposal. And there's a part of you that wants to say, I translated it, isn't that good? <laughs> I worked really hard on this. What the hell else do you want from me? But you've got to write a proposal and send it in and pray. Okay, so here's where the cool thing happens. So I just decided as I was listening to my students that summer that I translated, my students had essential worker parents who were dying in COVID. Okay, this is not a game. You know, I was translating and I had students who said, I've just taken a third job. Do you mind if we have this class asynchronous because I can't pay my rent if I, okay, all great. So one of the things that I was very aware of while, while I translated was also my students and that I wanted to make it be relevant to them. So I think most often translations are made for my age and above, whoever I am. Translations are made for my age and above. And if I'm 40, they're okay, or 50 or whatever. I actually made this translation mostly for Gen Z and millennials. And I don't mean that was the only, those were the only people, but they were definitely ones that I had in mind because I have so many students who come to me with um, different issues and this book is full of love. And I just thought, why couldn't we try to put something joyful out there? Because I partly feel as, feel as one of the olds. I know we're called the olds. Um, and I also was one of those that thought, okay, Boomer was funny, you know, right off the bat. All right. Just want to say, just want to get that out there. I went into my students and said, why are all the boomers upset about, okay, Boomer? You know, we deserve it. <laughs> I'm a young, I'm a young Boomer. Um, but I, I have students who are trying really hard to make the world a better place. And I often tell them, I'm really sorry, my generation and above that we really have given you this. I'm really sorry. But I also believe in great danger and in great hardships, there are great opportunities. So like, in what world would I ever get to be on Rethinking Faith? I mean, what world, this is a new, this is a new world and I'm really glad to be part of it. And I just hope that Brother Lawrence coming back into it can bring lots of people joy. Like a lot of people are writing me and saying, I love the pronouns. And that wasn't even, I had no, idea what was going to happen when I translate this book. I didn't even know I could translate it. I literally turned up every day and kept an open mind. So 
Yeah, okay, I just would feel you like mind just unpack yeah. that a little bit. Just, just yeah. I mean, okay. I've got. I know Josh probably has a thousand. I've got a thousand questions because yeah. you said so much gorgeousness with so many facets within each of those diamonds. But would you just unpack briefly with with this particular translation? You talked about the academic rigor of interpret translating it accurately, yeah. um, and especially acknowledging too that every translator. It's, 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 it's not, there's no backhanded subjective objectivism you know that there's subjectivity in the process um, but doing your best academically to translate it accurately and simultaneously acknowledging bringing your heart to the table and that being in some sense expressed through writing a book for millennials and gen zers um kind of a, an expression of that love for them in a language that would not just be like you're saying the classic approach which is for yourself and older um, but and and one of those facets is the pronouns. So just unpack your use of of pronouns within your translation, and and not just the academic aspect, but the, no. the heart the heartbeat behind them. Oh, the heartbeat! Wow, I love that. I absolutely love that. The heartbeat behind it. So how it worked was, I always tell my students when they're sharing their stories in class, that you can argue policies with someone, but you cannot argue someone else's experience. So I always tell them we have no stereotypes and you're, I'll respect you, you respect each other and me. So this literally came out of my own experience, how this happened. And when I started translating, of course, Brother Lawrence uses he for God. Now, this was such an enlightening thing for me. Because Brother Lawrence is an amazing person and his understanding, his beyond binary, I don't even say a non-binary in this case, because non-binary is also a binary term, right? <laughs> non-binary. Okay. So, but I mean, if people want to say I identify as, you know, if someone is out there listening and says, but I identify as someone says as non-binary, I understand I'm not, that's, you know, your thing. And people should choose how they identify and what they call them, how they identify. But what I'm saying is Brother Lawrence is beyond binary. And I choose beyond binary just to remind me that more than two in everything that he does. So as I started getting into his juicy calmness, I mean, I used to look forward. I don't sleep really great all the time. I would get up at four in the morning that summer when I was teaching full time. I couldn't wait to get up there and start reading Brother Lawrence. But I was like, you know, girl, you're like 60 now. And he and God, that just really doesn't do it for you. <clears throat> and recently when I interviewed Rabbi Rami Shapiro, he was like, I really got no interest in God the Father. <laughs> he just kind of, he just kind of, he's, he's such a sweet, he is such a sweet person. You know, lives in Tennessee, such a sweet, written a thousand books, amazing books. Um. And so I'm just like, ugh. so I played with it. So I know Mirabai Starr, who's, who's amazing, inner spiritual teacher, author, everything, nonfiction, award-winning person, really. Sometimes she will do, um, I've learned, he on one page and she on another page for God. So everybody who's a translator is trying to figure out what to do with, with pronouns. All I know is that I was seeing all of this ecstatic, like Sufi, um, like dancing, whirling um, in Brother Lawrence and also he for God. And it just 
it just, it wasn't doing it so much for me, but I thought, oh, well, Carmen, you can't have everything. <laughs> you know, they say you won't fare. You have to wait till October when it comes to town, you know, life. So you can't get everything. So I did the rough draft in four months. And then of course I revised it for a year and a half, but I did the rough draft in four months of about 10 hours a day. And, um, I met with my editor and that was when I told her I've done it. And she kind of looked at me like, what the, you know, what, what you've done it. I said, yeah, I've done it. And I would like to do it. Um, and I said, the only difficulty is I couldn't, this was a throwaway comment at the end. I said, I just couldn't figure out how to write God without using he pronouns. And um, I even tried not using pronouns at all for God. <laughs> you just don't get far. Let me just tell you, I even laugh about myself now. But what I love about translating is it brings out the kid in me. Like, like, like I was talking with Lama uh, Yeshe Rose uh, last week. She was saying, Carmen, it's so awesome to translate Tibetan because there are times when there are no pronouns needed. You can figure it out from the verbs. And old English is like that sometimes. You don't need pronouns. So it's not entirely far-fetched that I tried to translate this without pronouns, but it just didn't work. And I love also, I went through a phase of God is she. My mom's a really kind person. But, you know, that only goes so far, too. So I think often of God, I myself personally think of God as he and she and not he and not she. So, you know, it's all over the place. I think of God mostly as the egret flying across the marsh, you know, and um, people doing kind things for people who are on the margins, who are poor or have been uh, traumatized in some way by our machine called society that we're trying to reimagine. Um Anyway, and so I, that was just a throwaway comment. So uh, my, my editor said, ah, you know, she didn't say anything because it wasn't anything big deal. It wasn't nothing. I just said I couldn't do it. And um, next morning I got up and I came to the computer. And you have to know, I have people in my life I love very much who identify with MX or they and um, students. So many students, I know I can remember each one's name, so many students who identify with they. And um, I got up the next morning, four in the morning, there are no cars on the street because it's COVID lockdown and the birds start singing earlier. And you're like, birds exist. It's kind of like when you go outside the city and the light pollution goes away and you're going, darn, they're stars. It was like birds exist. And the birds were singing and I came and sat down in the dark and they was there. I cannot explain it. They was there. Because the other thing that irked me about the text was that no, it hasn't in the past been made so clear to my mind, at least to me, that Brother Lawrence has a very lived theology of Trinity, a very Trinitarian, a very lived, a very relational theology. So I started reading Anne Hunt. I started reading how each one of the, you know, it reminds me of the shack. Let's just Let's just say I love the shack. So I'm seeing how each one of the Trinity is represented in Brother Lawrence's understanding. He loves Mary. He's got this feminine energy going on. And so I was like, they. And I was like, oh, oh, God, that would be, oh, God. And then, you know, Josh and Greg, you don't just do a search and replace with pronouns. <laughs> you just, you, this is, this is kind of like, you know, this is just kind of like a very intimate thing. And so I thought to myself, I've just finished this draft. 
And now I need to go through and totally redo everything because I wanted to be sensitive to the fact that there are times when it says, Brother Lawrence says, because his understanding of suffering, as my friend Lama Yeshe Rose pointed out, his understanding of suffering is very like dukkha in the, in the Buddhist tradition, which I've studied a lot of. I, I'm, I'm not Lama Yeshe, please, please know, but I've studied a lot of for my own healing. And his understanding of suffering is very deep, but he does sometimes say things that if you took them out of context, you might use to hammer people with. So uh, somebody told me once. He says, he says, you know, God will let you suffer as long as he wants it. That's how he writes it. Um, and I didn't want to necessarily use they there when it sounded like God, when it could be taken out of context to be God as being somebody who lets you suffer. And then it's they there because I really wanted to bring everyone in inclusively and be kind. Okay. So I thought to myself, this they works academically to go back to Josh's and uh, your point, Greg. The they works academically because it emphasizes the lived Trinitarian theology where each person in the Trinity is an individual. So Josh can like the beer he likes, and Greg, you can like the coffee you like, and I can like the coffee I like too, or the beer. What I'm saying is we each get to be ourselves and we're dancing together in that perichoresis. So the other thing was, I thought to myself, all the people in my life who I know when they read he or she, they don't feel included. Don't we care about that? I mean, don't we care about the fact that, I mean, I care very much that I live on land that belonged originally to Ohlone tribes. Belonged, I use that word uh, advisedly, um, that was tended to um, and was, was stolen. And so I just really um, went back through and thought to myself, what an opportunity, Carmen, because it's going to take you days and weeks to do this. It took me days and weeks to do the day. But I thought, what an opportunity for people who I know, like my fifth grade teacher, my, my gifted fifth grade teacher, because I'm, I'm neurodiverse, but I've always had a few teachers who went, you know, you, you're kind of worthwhile. <laughs> so thank you, teachers, for that. Reading was so hard with my dyslexia, but I've had a few teachers who believed in me. But I thought I can use the they and then let readers read it who do identify using they and let them see if I at all got in the ballpark. But I can use they where people could learn how to use they also. But really, have we ever stopped to think if God is only he, whether or not we mean it, no matter how well-meaning we are, it makes it seem like only the masculine is divine. And that's not healthy even for the men. Because then the men think, men that I know, I'm, I'm not talking about, I'm not trying to say this as a uh, all sweeping comment. But some men I know I'm friends with, you know, can't cry, gotta be, whatever is this notion of God is great and <clears throat> always in charge. Um, so I, I was just thinking maybe this could be number one, it's more comfortable for me than they. And it also is a bit weird for me too. I'm kind of just, I remember even going, nobody's done this before, girl. And sometimes when there are things in the sentence beforehand, like books, like there's books, you think if I say they here, will they know it's God or the books? <laughs> so, so, and <clears throat> here's the rub though. When we use he for God in past 
translations and in Christianity in general and other religions, we don't have the difficulty of knowing when the he refers to someone else or to God. We have so enculturated over the years. But I try to be with, you know, I say little prayers all the time, little ones. And I, I tried to say, please show me what to do. Do I put the they here or not? And I literally redid it so many times I can't even can tell you. So I did it for myself to feel more comfortable reading it. I did it to honor the live Trinitarian theology. Thank you, Ann Hunt. And I did it also so that hopefully my students and family and friends who identify as they would maybe for the first time find themselves in a spiritual classic. That's what my hope is. And then it kind of took off. This was decided in the dark because it was just given to me. And I just was trying to be faithful to the spirit. I have heard other people talk about this before. I'm not really a woo-woo type person. I don't go around looking for these spiritual things. But the few times in my life I've been nudged, I pay attention. Because they're usually things that feed me and help me heal. Uh, because uh, I need it. So I really did it first for me you know, for my own healing, uh, but then also for Christianity, uh, because I think Christianity has a lot of beautiful treasures that have been buried under binaries. And the binary, what is it? I read somewhere that scientists, I, I did a lot of research into this nerd that I am, that scientists categorize sometimes, some scientists, insects into those with jaws and teeth and those without or something like that. But actually, there are more than two categories for even insects, you know, but we just pretend that binaries work. Binaries just, they rarely work. See, I don't want to say they don't work because then that makes it a binary, but binaries rarely work. Can I just say that? They, they rarely seem to work. And the other thing that bothers me about binaries is that they set up somebody above the other person. And that might sound okay if the person is the person above, but the problem is being above someone is not fun either eventually, or just isn't healthy. So that was, that's the they. And it's really funny because some of my friends, I went on a podcast uh, recently and one of my friends said, uh, I just have to tell you something. When I first started reading it and I ran into that they, I was like, yeah, I just don't know if I like this. <laughs> And, and this was like a podcast being recorded. And I thought, uh-oh, what's, uh, and I thought, smile, let's see. And, and then they, and then they said, uh, and then I was like, man, I really like, like, I like, like this is, and people have told me that it, it speaks to the, I mean, people of all identifications, like people who identify as cis, straight, people in the queer community who identify, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I don't really like using those terms, but what I'm saying is people from all different points of view are saying that it's a breath of more than fresh air, that it's kind of like a, an openness that's, that's new. So I hope that it brings much, much joy to people. I really do. Cause it's a book. What was it? One of you said once, I don't know if it's Greg or you, Josh, but you said that there are some books that you have to experience. You can't just read. For me, Brother Lawrence is like, I've been making these memes with some of his quotes. And every time I do, I feel like I've just cut off a piece of his hair or something like off his head. Like, I think, how will you know what the person who this head came from by this little piece of hair that I'm making on Canva? 
I, but I think Carmen, you've got to get out there because it's like Horton hears a who world now. I want to say, Brother Lawrence, Brother Lawrence, you know. Um, so I, so I do take some little pieces out, but Brother Lawrence is an, an experience really to be immersed in, uh, to my mind. And then to realize that God is love and that I'm love, that we're all love. That's, that to me is the, is the true thing. And everybody is invited. That's the thing. Everybody, everybody. Yeah. It really, really strikes me. Uh, from what you were describing, you know, at the beginning of this interview, you talked about that when you really were leaning into experiencing Brother Lawrence, said he, he, you said he blew the hinges off of you because of his gentleness. And I just thought, you, 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 those are, it's, you know, that seems a bit uh, contradictory, right? It's blowing hinges off from gentleness, but, but simultaneously, that's the very nature of what is the most transformative, right? And then you also described, I love, I've never, I've never heard this adjective with calmness, juicy calmness. Um, and, and both of those together that the, the most powerful and, and the most powerful thing that transformed you was gentleness and that what was magnetic to you that was just had the solar pull of gravitation uh was his juicy uh calmness and and to me that's so resonant with your description of even the, the pronoun use of of wanting this to be accessible and welcoming to all into in, in into that eternal trinity dance in, into that that gentle celebration of love and one pouring out over the other, pouring out over the other uh, for all eternity and welcome and gentleness. And, you know, we, at Second Breath, uh, you know, we talk about we're committed to creating, we say sacred spaces. We, we used to say we're committed to creating safe spaces, but we realize we don't really have the power to do that. We can create sacred spaces, but safe spaces is what everybody's bringing to that. And we're really committed to trying to make it as safe as possible. But in my experience, I've never experienced authentic change unless I felt safe. Uh, unless I felt seen and known and accepted. And and to me, that's what you're describing. You, you, that, that's what oozes out of uh, Brother Lawrence's story. Uh, it, it, that's what started uh, for you in nature. Um, and that's one of my favorite wild geese is one of my favorite Mary Oliver poems that, you know, let, let the soft animal of your body loves what it loves. And uh, again, what's so powerful and as gentle 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 acceptance 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 us being free to be ourselves but so that to me um when we talk about what motivated you to do this and what resonated so deeply it seems and, and, and correct not correct me if i'm wrong but you know just correct me if i'm wrong or just nuance it if i'm uh coming at it from different angles but what it sounds like in your own journey was in brother lawrence you found this like-hearted soul friend that embodied gentleness and love in a way that flowed from his being from the inside out and that resonated with you in a way that was so healing and then you wanted to express that in a way that could make it accessible to as many people as possible i guess i'm attempting to nutshell an f5 tornado but is that is that what you're describing that's beautiful greg i couldn't have said it better that that really is it because one of the things I realized is that his soul was crafted, like you said, from the inside out. I love that. Y'all say that a lot, and I really love it, from the inside out. And you talk about how um, the soul and the body are intertwined. But his disability 
was severe. And it's taken me many years to say this, but I have lived with disability my whole life. If I had admitted that earlier in my life, I don't think I could have functioned. Also, the society I came from was, if uh, the culture was, if you say you have depression, which luckily I've gotten uh, therapy for and uh, all manner of things and have been really fortunate, you know, we need more therapists, we need better health care, all that. But I, I really have found that um, when, when I look at Brother Lawrence, his disability, he turned somehow over to love. And I've done that too. And Hildegarda Bingen had, you know, these amazing um, migraines, ocular migraines, and she did something with them too. So, um, you know, but what I was going to say, Mingo, was in my culture growing up, if you did say you had depression, you would have been often been told to read the Bible more or to know the memorize, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you're right, you know, for the sword drills or something like that. Um, but his disability and his trauma. So people don't talk much about disability and trauma. My thinking is that sadly with COVID and people who are experiencing long COVID, like my husband, um, still functioning, uh, but needs to rest more, you know, functioning well, but needs to rest more that our understanding of disability uh, needs to, uh, is well overdue, but I, I do think that there's gonna be a shift, you know, because there's so much more obvious disability out there now with long COVID. Um, but his trauma in the war is also a factor that isn't talked about very much. And I did a lot of reading about the 30 years war. And he was a prisoner of war. You know, I think of uh, one of the most famous ones of recent note, John McCain. He was a prisoner of war and he was, um, you know, questioned. We don't know, tortured, whatever. But also the 30 years war, war was heinous for war crimes against civilians. Because there were all these, in Central Europe, there were all these armies just marauding all over. And when you read about it and you see some of the art, okay, I'm just, you know, I don't want to talk about it, but it, when you see some of the art, I put that in quotes, is I'm very well aware that he may have seen things in the war or who knows what he did in the war. We don't know. I'm not going to speculate. All I know is when you get into his words in the French, when he describes his emotions about the war, he says he looked at his youthful days and he looked at his time uh, there with horror. So it's like he has post-traumatic stress disorder. And I know we want to keep brushing all of these mental wellness uh, things under the rug, but I teach and my students, um, they're, they're not shy to talk about mental wellness and the need for more resources. So Brother Lawrence, his theology comes out of his turning to love in his disability and in his trauma. It's as real, it's very desert father, desert mother. Like when you think of somebody like the desert father Moses or somebody who might have killed some people. I mean, this is this isn't like where you dress up in your pretty outfit and go to church on Sunday and try to look like you've got it all together or you know, Instagram post. 
although that will never be me because I'm not that good at it. <laughs> but yeah, but Brother Lawrence is definitely, um, you, you summed it up. I couldn't sum it up any better. He, the other thing is we don't talk enough about the fact that he didn't like the kitchen work and kitchen work was women's work. <laughs> Sorry to say, uh, but, uh, you know, when we used to have gatherings growing up and this is just how it is or was, uh, first of all, I had Cuban as part of my background and the South and a woman. So whenever we had big gatherings, I helped prepare. I always washed dishes, you know, it's like just one of those things. Brother Lawrence was in the kitchen for 40 something years. He didn't really like it, but he learned to do that with the greatest love possible for his 100 or so brothers. And later, and think about how messy kitchen work is. Like it's messy. You know, you don't even make a little cheese sandwich without there being some mess, much less cook for a hundred brothers. And the other thing is he mended sandals later. And as a really good friend said to me the other day, have you ever thought about how that must have smelled? <laughs> so I just want to say, I just pictured Brother Lawrence with the messy dishes and everybody burping and just getting up and going about their day. And also the smelly sandals and how he knew life was real. So that's what I love about Brother Lawrence is it's like I had a, a, a Gen Z new friend the other day tell me because I'm going to try to do something live on Instagram for the book launch. And she said, just Carmen, you just got to be authentic. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I see, I see y'all doing stuff like that. And it's like, but I'm like, Brother Lawrence is the original be authentic. Do you understand what I'm saying? He is the original live IG authentic brother Lawrence. He is, he's the person, he's the one who, who has it. And, uh, he's just himself. So he's somebody I, I really, like you said, the juicy calmness, I hadn't even realized I said that, but his calmness is palpable when you read the French. And that's what I tried and prayed to get, because one of the things you try to do, it's almost like I have a friend who's a counselor and she says she tries to get out of the way for the person or a spiritual director, but tries to get out of the way. So the person she's talking with has space. So as a translator, I do something similar, although I'm not a counselor, I'm not a spiritual director, but I try to get out of the way so that brother Lawrence can come through. So this isn't Carmen translating brother Lawrence. It's more like me trying to catch the ear of brother Lawrence in English while I get far enough out of the way uh, to do it. That's always my goal. So that's what, if people tell me they catch some of that calmness, I think we need more calmness these days, right? So, <clears throat> you know, more conversations and more calmness. Yeah, for sure. I And I think, I mean, for me, that's one thing that stands out is I think the calmness comes through. Like if that was one of your goals is capturing that, I think you nailed it. So <laughs> well done. Um, and I, I want to comment on the embodied spirituality and dishwashing that you're talking about, but also I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, tell the story um, just about the the pronouns, which I know we, we talked about a few moments ago. But the pronoun thing for me, uh, I, so I personally, I really like it. Um, but it just, it recalled to mind, um, I had an experience recently where I got to, uh, go teach <laughs> like theology to a bunch of high school kids for like a week long, like high school youth retreat. Um, which is crazy. Cause the lady called me and was like, Hey, will you come 
teach this. I like your podcast. And I was like, so hold on. You listen to the podcast and you still want me to come teach high school students. <laughs> like, all right, cool. So anyway, um, I get there and I was told like, hey, oh, by the way, like, I hope it's, you know, it's cool. But like, we have this um, gender neutral cabin that you're going to stay in. There'll be another adult leader with you and then some students um, who are non-binary. And I was like, yeah, absolutely cool. So it was really neat. Like, I mean, the truth of it is I had like the best cabin I had my own bed, my own shower, everything. And so did all the students. It was great. But at camp, one of the most profound experiences I had, uh, and it happened twice, was being led in communion and served communion by a non-binary student at camp. And though, like, it was such a deeply moving experience, um, and then just the relationships that I built, built with them, with these, these few students, um, has been life-changing. And it's one of those things uh, where once you experience something, like you talked about earlier, it's really hard to argue with somebody's experience. And so for me, just the one thing that came to mind, I was just like, like, church, we can do better. <laughs> Like, like, it's like my, my friend propaganda talks about, like, uh, he said, when people ask him about, you know, or like women in ministry or like gay people in church, he was like, look, I don't know what to tell you because this is my friend. And she is a woman who is a pastor. It's like, if you were asking me if I believed in aliens and there was one sitting next to me, I'd be like, there's one right here. You keep telling me they're not real, but bro, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> And so he he talks about uh, these other issues in the same way. He's like, look, you say women can't be pastors. I know like nine of them. I don't know what to tell you. They're amazing. You say gay people can't be Christians. I don't know what to tell you. Here, they're sitting next to me. I'm like, what do you want me to do? And so that embodied experience of having these non-binary students lead, literally like read the communion i don't know whatever the right liturgical words whatever uh and serve communion was a transformational experience and for somebody to tell me that god was not active and present in and through that experience and that divine uh love and flow is not present would be insane and so when i with the pronouns i just um Man, it's going to make me emotional, but it's it just it's exciting because these are people that are literally cast out on the outside, you know, outskirts of society and to then still be willing to serve communion. To and like still be a part of this thing, even after they have been told, fuck you, you're not a person like. I don't know. So thank you for that. That and to to know that then, my friends, um, I can hand them this translation and they will feel seen and known and loved and appreciated, uh, is just fantastic. So I didn't want to not say that. Um, so thank you for that. Um, but now you made uh, me emotional. Now you made me <laughs> emotional, John. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Beautifully um, said. Well, thank you. Um. But the what what I loved about reading this and and practice of the presence and seeing you write about Brother Lawrence like you know not like washing the dishes and uh, things like that was it's just um, 
like I do a very physically demanding job. Uh, like it, it, it just, I thought of what I do. Uh, people think being a brewer is like, oh, this big sexy job, but it's not. <laughs> Brewing beer is hard work. And most of the time I'm cleaning. It's like 95% cleaning, 5% having fun. And so even in moments at work, you know, I'm working in a quote unquote secular space um, where I'm cleaning kegs and cleaning tanks and scrubbing floors and, you know, just think then like in these moments, you know, as I was reading this and then being at work, you know, by myself, working my ass off, but then also thinking about brother Lawrence and then trying to myself practice the presence and just recall, you know, what I'm doing in this moment matters. Um, and I can do it with the most amount of love and, and gentleness and care and compassion that I can. Um, was a really cool experience for me. And it, it added just like a new fun layer, uh, to what I get to do, you know, um, at work. So I, I appreciated that. And the, like you said, the embodied spirituality, um, was really big. So I said a lot of things, somebody else say something. That's awesome. <laughs> no, but that's no, but that's really awesome. Cause that's exactly a brother Lawrence would be really pleased to hear that. I think, cause you're talking about, um, the ease of it in the sense of it's a habit and you can do it whenever. But I also like you sharing about, you know, being a brewer is not like just drinking beer. I think sometimes people equate it with that, you know, Oh, you're a brewer. You get to bring, you know, I do drink a lot of beer, but that's not the only thing I do. <laughs> I know, yes. I know, but I think, I think people don't know that. Like, I love yeah. that you say there's cleaning and there's, <laughs> uh, yeah. So no, you said that so well, Josh. That means a lot because, I mean, I, I just picture Brother Lawrence at the beginning because he did have a 10 year dark night of the soul. Um, and from he, when he was about 26 to about 36, when he first went into the monastery in Paris and. You know, he didn't have a feeling that he was making progress, he felt like he was going to. You know that he was damned, so to speak. But he just kept at it. He just kept turning to. And I know that you both talk about and I also do um, centering prayer and other meditations and things. So where you sit for many minutes, a couple of times a day or one time a day or however. And I find having translated the cloud of unknowing. That centering prayer is based on. I, I really think that Brother Lawrence is like the to go version of the cloud of unknowing. Like, and like, I'll take the cloud of unknowing to go, please. And, th and that's like Brother Lawrence. And I'm, I know that this seems academically or intellectually like, oh, yeah, of course. But I'm talking about it experientially, that when you do, uh, you know, centering prayer or you do like I also love to do chants, uh, like from the Buddhist tradition and things, sometimes in another language. Um, because it really, and I think about what the words mean though, just so I can kind of have a different, uh, and one of my friends helps me with that a little bit, but I really like the fact that um, you can have these very many M-I-N-I experiences of that returning to love in the practice of the presence that's writ large in something like centering prayer and that you can do it at any time. And the other thing I love about it 
because I used to be a perfectionist. Now I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I don't really say that as a joke so much. You know, Anne Lamott says that uh, perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor. That's a quote from Bird by Bird. And um, I really, what I love about practice of the presence is for the, for the girl in me who had to make all A's in college to keep her scholarship, or else I would have had to go back home because we couldn't afford college. Um, for the girl in me who thinks she has to make an A in life, also because my grandfather was an immigrant from Cuba, he used to always say, we got to be, he used to call me stinky for some reason. I'm not, I didn't know if I should say that on the podcast, but he used to say, stinky, we Acevedos are always number one. That is really tiring. You know, that is just not the best way to go about life. And, but, but I know why he did it. He was a shoe salesman at Riches. He did it because he felt like he was going to be thrown out any moment from America. You know, like he was trying to say, I belong here. Look, I'm working hard. I get that. I love my granddad. But what I love about practice of the presence is whenever you return after you've forgotten, there's this like really great ambiance. It's not like, where you been? You know, it's not like, whoa. it's not like this really deep voice that I used to picture as God, you know, like, like, you know, when you didn't go to church and somebody called you up on Sunday afternoon, going, where were you? You know, and you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm dying now and going to hell. But whenever I return to it, it's like, so glad to have you back, Carmen, my girl, good to see you. And so it's always hopeful and positive. And I know I've been fortunate because uh, my husband is a very kind person and he has helped me to understand what love is. And Cynthia Bourgeau talks about this. She, she said that there was this guy once, I can't tell the story like she does because Cynthia tells every story better than you know most anybody. But she tells the story of a guy who was really sort of frustrated with Christianity. And he went to Father Anthony and said, this is just, you know, I don't get it. Just doing nothing for me, all these blah, you know, stuff. And that Father Anthony told him to go do uh, like a hundred full prostrations or something like that. And he went away. Um, and these are some pretty serious things. Brother Lawrence does them. He said when he would get done with his kitchen chores, he'd get on the floor and prostrate before God. And if you've ever tried a full bow or a full prostration, I have for two reasons. One reason I've done it before out of grief where just all of a sudden you find yourself on the floor and your soul is rended. I've had that. I, I've also had it where I'm on the floor out of uh, either uh, supplication or gratitude. But when you're on the floor, it is really an experience that teaches me something that my mind could never take in. So it's one of those from the inside out experiences that y'all like to talk about. So when, and I'm glad you do. So when this young man went back to see Father Anthony, he was beaming. He was like, I get it. I, I get it. And this is why I go walking as often as I can. For me, nature is a safe container. So is my kind husband. But nature is a safe, and and Yulanov, one of my favorite Jungian psychoanalysts, because I've read a lot of psychology trying to heal myself. She says how, you know, we all need these safe containers. But religion for me was not a safe container. Religion for me was something that needed to be totally reimagined. What some young people, you know, call the deconstruction or what um, Audre Lorde called the dismantling, right? Uh, 
but I'm really thankful for like the safe container of nature and brother Lawrence loved nature too, because when I realized this the other day, when I go out in nature, I feel like love is hugging me. Yeah, that's it. And that's physical. And I couldn't, I have read the Bible several times, mostly when I was in graduate school, because I wanted to see what the hell does it really say? Like if I read it all the way through, I've had so many, and pardon me if I say this, because I don't mean this as a blanket statement, but I had so many white men telling me what the Bible meant. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It did not mean those things. It, it, that was their interpretation and bless them because they're caught in the system too, you know, but there was a lot of shouting from the pulpit and it scared me. I didn't need that. Uh, so I read the Bible, you know, several times through, and that did help me to see, you know what? The Bible is actually about wisdom and love. Fancy that. It's about me trying wisdom and love and Ubuntu, to use the, the African phrase with great respect. It's about I, you know, I am you and you are me. And I am me because you're you and we're all in this together. That's what the Bible's about. It's about relationships and love and wisdom. It's not about, it's not about all this. Oh my God. I had to really deprogram myself. It was painful. I mean, I really thank uh, my relationship, my main relationship with my husband for helping me with that. It was really painful. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, well, thank you for sharing all of that. And in particular, what, what struck me and well, first of all, so much of it comes out of pain, right? I, I just think our, it is this, this place of, uh, it, oftentimes those of us who've gone through, especially technicolor pain and suffering, it, it often leads to us becoming very brittle and cynical and jaded or very tender and open uh, and, and soft, but not much in between when there's that technicolor suffering. But, but one thing that you described, and, and Josh, you hit on this as you're talking about washing out, uh, you know, the barrels or i know I'm, i've got it wrong i'm probably that's more wine language right uh you're an expert more my Greg, speed. i believe in you I'm, I'm more of a i'm more of the wine guy but i appreciate there's a beer guy here um but so uh you know in that process of of getting your hands dirty in the in, in the mundane but you know one thing that i found with so many people and what i think brother lawrence especially in your emphasis at, and even your uh, introduction and what you're inviting people to throughout the book is a healing of this delusion of the separation between a, a number of separations between the spiritual and the mundane there's like this this spiritual world out there but here's my real life and i've talked to people that i've asked a question what tell me about your spiritual life and they would say it's just sunday morning and maybe a few times i'm praying during the week but then there's the rest of real life um and then there's also the separation of uh, ourselves from uh others and ourselves from god and and to me the delusion of separation is the root structure of, of, of all suffering. I believe when the Bible talks about sin, it is this delusion of separation that this, that, that all every act of violence, greed, uh, dominance, war uh, on a, on a micro or macro level is born out of the belief that we're separate. Um, and, and also, and separate from the spiritual world as if, as if I am functioning like an island seeing the world through these eyes and i end at my skin but what you're describing uh in the mundane and in your experience and what brother lawrence was doing was realizing that peeling potatoes uh was completely spiritual and that and that what you were describing is that every moment 
was an invitation into this awareness that that the, the, the I mean, I always I always think about quoting, you know, Paul, who is, of course, quoting a, a Greek poet to the philosophers in Athens when he says that in God we live and move and have our being. But this is that's language of immersion. That's language of saturation and marination. Um, and this idea that right now we're marinating in this divine presence and and what what we're growing in is slowly growing an awareness of what already is. Um, and so just in your in your experience, because you grew up in a tradition that was very dichotomous, very binary, very in and out, us, them, very God's up there, we're down here, sin separating us. And now what you're describing and experiencing Brother Lawrence in your process is this gentle invitation at every moment to grow an awareness of the beauty and truth that we're immersed in. Um, and that that is reality. Could, could you unpack your experience of that for us? Like, just, as, as you experienced that, 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 I mean, you already did a little bit when, when you were talking about that, that morning when it was COVID and no one was there and it was dark and the birds were singing. And it was that moment of, oh my God, the birds have been singing the whole time. And now I'm hearing the birds uh, with fresh ears. Um, so maybe kind of describe that. that that's, that's a microcosm of it, but kind of describe from that microcosm, the broader perspective of that experience. Wow, that's such such a good question, Greg. And it first reminds me of Paula Darcy, who says that God comes to us disguised as our life. So even through grief. And, you know, I love that Rumi line where Rumi says, be gentle in grief and don't forget your tambourine. I mean, that's just a, yeah, that's a reminder to me. Um, so if I think about, to unpack it. And, and I just want to say again, what an amazing thing it is that you two are doing because you're both so smart and so balanced about so many things. Uh, like I told you before I even got on today, I had this great imaginary set of conversations with you both that enriched my life greatly, you know, in thinking about what we might talk about, but, you know, wanting it to just unfold as it is. I have to think when you ask that really good question, Greg, I have to think about fishing. I grew up fishing. And I have to also think of uh, Dr. James Finley, who I had a conversation with recently, who talked about how he saw the sunlight one day on a leaf in a certain way. And that was just, it's kind of like a Brother Lawrence when he saw that barren tree in winter and he had that moment. And we often think those are other people. It's the, it's the Jim Finleys of the world or it's the Brother Lawrences. But what, you know, Jim Finley teaches is there are ways that we can all support ourselves so that we can make that kind of um, what you say beyond binary experience of secular sacred happen more often. And he says, but we also know, as Jim says, we also know that it's not that we make it happen is a gift. So we remember all of this kind of, uh, you know, mystic cap, we put our mystic cap on, but I have to think about fishing because I grew up in the country. And I grew up in the day before the internet uh, was invented. So, you know, we did things at home, like make radios from little kits. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm not that old, but there were, you know, but anyway. And I would go fishing. That was what you did instead of MTV. You know, there was just like, and we had black and white TV. And when we got a color TV, it was like Jesus had landed in our home. 
Uh, still, we had to hit it on the side sometimes because we did not have the best color TV, you know, to get the rabbit or we had to go move the rabbit ears or something. But I would go fishing by myself. I was the oldest of, or am the oldest of four, luckily, still am the oldest of four. And I would just notice when I, I mean, I learned, I was a sort of loved fishing. I mean, I used to put the catawba worms on there and it didn't bother me then that it was so juicy and everything, you know, like is really juicy. The slime of a catawba worm is real. It stays on your fingers for weeks, but it sure catches good fish. And I would go out there and just something about the way the red and white, you know, it, the cork would float on the water and the way you look at you're not going anywhere. It doesn't really even matter if you catch any fish or not, although I was certainly trying. And then sometimes my line would get all knotted up. And I remember thinking even then, there's something special in unknotting this line. <laughs> I mean, I'm only like 10 or something. And I'm in Perry, Georgia. I'm in South Georgia. And I just had these moments. I remember once too, um, I mean, hours, when you spend hours outside by yourself, it's bound to happen, uh, especially if it's kind of a safe environment. I'm not talking like you're out in the middle of nowhere, uh, lost or something. Uh, but, you know, I would just have these moments where I could walk through the woods as a teenager growing up. And I remember one time I was dancing in the woods. What was that about? What was that I just remember I just started dancing in the woods and I just thought there was some generosity towards myself then, even though I was, you know, having difficulties and such of like, well, girl, you just danced, enjoy it. My, I mean, but, I, but the other part of me, the little mind part of me was going, why did you do that? That is really unusual to say the least. Uh, but there was just something about being out in nature. So I spent a lot of hours. I really, 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 the first person I'm going to look up, I think, you know, when I die, whatever it's like, I mean, I have no idea what that is, Mary Oliver, because she talks about when she would enter the woods, it was like the trees saying, welcome back. I get this. I totally get this because I spent hours. I spent hours out in the woods. That was my first therapist, literally a very fine therapist too, but so much more than that. I'm not talking about nature as what is useful for Carmen. I just mean the spirit was so strong there that it really did help me. So that was, I did a lot of walking. I was um, telling a trip, you know, Fuller the other day that on Homebrewed, how um, I really found when I was out in nature that um, I felt a kind of calmness that I felt nowhere else. I mean, I just, I can't, I can't explain it, but it kept me coming back. And that's what I think, Brother Lawrence, that spirit is what I wanted more of. And that's why I feel really fortunate to have been able to actually, um, I'm keeping looking at my book here to give me, uh, what do you call it, uh, good vibes for uh, staying on point. Um, but I really think that being out in nature for hours on end is what mostly saved me. Although I will add that I started doing Lexio Divina, so sacred reading, uh, and it came out of my uh, Southern Baptist roots. So I just, you know, I have to, it's complicated life, right? So one of the things that my mother taught me was to memorize Bible verses. And even if you just deal with he wept enough for Jesus, if you, if you really meditate on he wept enough, it will really upend your world. 
So, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I did, I went through, I did all these, but what happened in graduate school when I was having such bad insomnia, like sleeping literally two or three hours a night and still made Phi Beta Kappa. So that's why I'm saying people look at my life and go, wow, well done. And I'm like going, man, I've been through so much shit. <laughs> I mean, anorexia, you know, a carpal tunnel for years where I couldn't unscrew my shampoo bottle. Um, so, yeah, but when I was in graduate school and having such severe uh, insomnia, I would walk through Athens, Georgia for an hour, like in the morning, an hour in the evening, and I'd be meditating on Bible verses. So it was nature and also these wise Bible verses. You can about bet you it wasn't something to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the wise Bible verses, you, you know, the ones that give you life. And I cannot tell you how much time I spent doing that. I was really depressed then. Thankfully, I'm not depressed now. My doctor said the other day, you're in remission. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not ever. <laughs> when she said remission, I was like, I love my doctor. But I was like, I don't like that. You know, I, was just like, but I didn't tell her that. So hopefully she won't listen to this show. <laughs> but anyway, um, but I really spent hours feeding myself because I knew that my mind was as the Buddhists say it was ruminative and we're not talking about good ruminative it was ruminative on I'm crap that was I was self-loathing so it was it was ruminative on I'm crap because that's kind of what I was taught both um partly at home but mostly at church you are a worm you know that was the verse I was like I already know this tell me something I don't know so um because I was really fortunate to be able to live on nothing and go to graduate school and read the Bible and do Lexio Divina. I actually fed my ruminative mind. Like I put in these Bible, ver like, like I could, it wasn't, if it hadn't been Bible verses or something else, it could have been seen as not very healthy, but I used my repetitive mind, my obsessive compulsive mind to go over these Bible verses. And I would have these little three by five cards. I would type up the verse and print it out and put it on the card and it would just get to where it would be I'd open it up and you could see daylight between the card because I had been over it so often so I literally you know really that's one reason when you talk about brother Lawrence's gentleness I mean my husband's the same way it's like this gentleness that I hadn't had for myself but that I could often try to have for other people but you know it's really never quite good until you have it for yourself it's just I mean, we're really that sort of self-compassion has been my uh, ever since like my mid 50s self-compassion, something about starting to teach at Berkeley. I guess one of the reasons is because I was older, but also at Berkeley, a lot of my students got there because they're so conscientious. And so I started seeing saying to my students in conferences, do you practice self-compassion? <laughs> not not, not a, a secular, you know, I'm not talking about religious self-compassion, whatever that could be, but I'm just like do you practice self-compassion or are you, or I would say to my students, do you consider yourself a perfectionist? They're like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so I started because I was already working on self-compassion for myself, bringing it into my curriculum and saying to my students, you know, you rock like, hello, are you drinking water? Are you telling yourself that you rock? Um, and so it's changed my world in, in a, in a lot of ways. So it's been both nature and words. And, but here's the other thing. Eventually, I think Christianity, the way I was taught it, broke something in me. 
I'm, I'm just going to be quite honest with you. Um, I mean, I was having difficulties on my own, but I feel as if the theology that came to me broke something in me. And um, in order for that to heal for me, please note, I am not advising this for everybody. This is my experience, as you say, and as you all both say, and I love this. And by sharing my experience, maybe it'll be helpful for somebody else, but it's not a dictation or a dictate of anything. But by trying to um, heal myself, I came to understand that I needed also uh, my Buddhist friends. I needed my Muslim friends. I needed my uh, Hindu friends. I needed my atheist friends who I needed my friends who are Stoics who do something else entirely. And so I started realizing when you are hurt or injured and you're falling, and I know Pema Chodron says, when you're falling, you're just aware of reality. And that's so true. But there's a certain kind of falling where you're like, oh, shit, I'm never going to stop falling. Um, when you're falling and you're, quote, unquote, hungry in some way or need some healing, when the medicine is presented, you don't ask what its name is. I mean, I'm not saying I'm just I'm just saying. When, it, when the medicine presents itself, you say, thank you, very humbly. And so I was really fortunate to find some healing in different places like Rumi or like even my friend um, Shima. She wrote me one day out of the blue saying, I love your cloud of unknowing. And she um, is a practicing Muslim. And I was like, oh, my God, I've always wanted to have a friend who could read Rumi in the original. And, you know, they just want to have one of those Spock moments where my friend Shima puts her hand, her hand on my head and I hear Rumi. And you know what Shima always says? You can't separate Rumi from the music. And we play Rumi all the time. Rumi isn't something that Shima sits with just and goes, mm, you know, it's like singing. And at all occasions, Rumi is just like Brother Lawrence. He's just there, you know. So, so I think what you were saying to go back, Greg, after this long disquisition is that our separating the secular and the sacred and our separating like I'm over here and you're over there instead of I am who you are and you are who I am and yet also if Greg likes wine and Josh prefers beer and because of my digestion doesn't work so great I like coffee for now although I would drink anything with you then that's then that's that's good. I mean, okay, so here's here's my one gripe with with things as it was when I, I I just think one of the things that's difficult about the separation is it turns religion into a football game. So it's like you have Georgia and Georgia Tech. And I went to Georgia, University of Georgia for my graduate degree. My dad went to Georgia Tech for his undergraduate. That caused some tension, you know. But it's like we have Christianity and Christianity saying, Woohoo, we got it through the goalpost. We got it. We're the one. We know how to play the game. And the other is another team, and they're and they're not good. And I, I think this 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 mindset, um, I, I see it shifting. And I think your podcast is one of the most important ways to help continue that gentle shift conversation and experience sharing because I've y'all put out what over like I mean I know you also with other people Josh but y'all you know you and Greg now 
over 150, I don't know, like you got bukus of podcasts out there with rich, good stuff in them. And I'm just hoping we can get to the point where it's like, this is, we're all in this together. That's, that's what my hope is because, because we need each other really. Y'all are really, but what y'all are doing has really touched me because y'all joke and you laugh and then you're brilliant and wise and human. And so I just want to say thank you for, I mean, that separation point is such a, such a really, really good point. I want, I just want to be as good a human being as Tao, our rescue cat is a cat. <laughs> That's just what I, I just want to say. And I just read this book. I was asked to blurb, uh, endorse, read with an eye to endorsing a uh, John Sweeney's book, sit in the sun. And it's about spirituality and cats. So we rescued our cat, Tao, he's Siamese or whatever. And all I know is that my massage therapist, because I've been having some carpal tunnel lady, my massage therapist said, you know, Carmen, you're not the only one who's messed up about this kind of stuff. I said, I don't know why I can't get my life together. And um, she said, if we just were all like our dogs and cats and stretched every hour, we would be so much better off. Like Tao just goes over. He came to us with the name Tao. But the people who rescued him was calling, were calling him Teo. So I thought his name was Teo. And I was telling my husband uh, and our daughter who lives with us, I was saying, Teo, that name's got to go, you know? And then we saw in his folder, it said Tao. And we don't want to call him Dow because that just sounds, he looks like a Tao. But I just, isn't that weird that his name is Tao? <laughs> I just, can I just want to say, Greg and Josh, I want my, I only have one goal in life is uh, to be like Tao or Brother Lawrence. I'll take whichever comes first, really. <laughs> well, that's hilarious. That's perfect. Well, uh, first of all, I just so much uh, you, you've, uh, the amount of territory you've covered and the whole thing, you know, one of the things that Josh and I are passionate about um, is approaching spirituality as embodied. And we talk about the three centers of intelligence. It's not just the mind, but the heart and the body. And that when we invite our guests, especially, you know, brilliant writers and academics, sometimes there's a temptation to uh, just speak primarily about concepts that are intellectually stimulating, but everything for us needs to be rooted in, in, in real life and what leads to authentic transformation and really just the experience of love. And all that you shared today was an embodiment of that. So thank you, just out of the gate. And then also in terms of what we're putting out into the world to be a part of its healing and transformation, which I think is our passion, your passion, from your book, The Translation of Cloud of Unknowing, to your book that's coming out, Seeing Practice of the Presence. It It is so, from the very uh, first page to the last, it, it, as you're describing, it is an embodiment of that gentleness it, it is an embodiment of uh, shifting the idea of the spiritual life from a laborious or climbing a ladder to as natural as breathing and resting and abiding in the divine love that's all around and within. And as we begin to each absorb that and metabolize it, it ripples out from our lives, you know, in this continued healing movement. Um, so uh, we cannot, so I know Josh and I just can't recommend enough when this book comes out. Uh, for for folks to go pick it up and you've just been an absolute delight and it's been an honor talking with you thank you for sharing not just your insights from your translations but how that was born out of your story 
um i feel you know i i I say this on occasion but i just i really do right now as i'm just leaning into what my body is feeling i feel like a full sponge where i just have been soaking up so much uh richness and goodness and the beauty of your story and the authenticity and the hardness hardness and sadness along with the joy that emerged from that and continues to your processing through i feel like a full sponge and i just want to say thank you for sharing yourself with such vulnerability and presence not just to me but to to all the folks that are listening so thanks so much for coming today carmen it's a real gift thank you greg thank you josh would y'all mind if i sang one song before i go you can use it or not because I know y'all got I know y'all got those super editing skills uh, that that are just amazing so one of the things because you were asking what I do one of the things I do is sing my name Carmen means song or poem so one of the things I've always done is sing you know regardless and so one of my favorites lately I mean I do sing Cabman's hymn a lot and that's old English <clears throat> but I'm not going to sing. I, I want to sing a Paulette Meyer song, the Quaker, you know, and it's all about stillness. But the reason I want to say this is because you're talking about embodied and I, I love concepts too. I just want to say Josh and Greg. And I think when y'all do the concepts, they're so amazingly also with embodiedness, you know? So anyway, I hope, I hope y'all always do concepts too. But one of the ways that I embody things is to sing. And all the time, I mean, I really try not to do it when I'm passing people in the marsh. <laughs> I don't want to be that person, but I really don't care too much either. So this is Paulette Myers. And um, sometimes I sing it with God and sometimes I sing it with love because I know God is a kind of a tricky word for some people and even for me sometimes. Okay, so it goes like this. Stillness, deep, deep within us. From small beginnings it flows into the living water, an ocean of God, through our stillness God moves. And if I sing that for 10 minutes or so, it really does help me because the other thing is it gets me thinking about the breath, actually singing. You know, I read somewhere lately, that Hildegard of Bingen to sing her chants is like breath work because they're so, and so I just think we sometimes forget that singing and chanting is also breath work. And that has healed me a lot. Those kinds of, of things. Wow. Thank y'all for having me on. I kind of am fanboying. Is that okay to say? Because I think we say fangirl. (laughs) I don't mean y'all are boys at all. But I mean, can I say I've been fanboying because like your your podcast is just the bee's knees. It really, it really is. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Greg and I, like Greg said a million times, we were both super hyped uh, when you agreed to come on the show. I like texted Greg. It was like, bro. And he was like, what? No way. So we're pretty excited. (laughs) I mean, y'all are so just amazing. I mean, y'all really fan, are fan truly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's really a word, fanboying. I've never heard it before, but I definitely feel that way. Just want to say. Yeah, take, we'll take it. <laughs> Thank I you. Just, I just appreciate how you use your intellects in such balanced ways. I re- Because that's what strikes me is that it's so smart, but doesn't lead with that. You don't, you know what I'm saying? You don't, it's just, it's in there. It's part of the, so yeah. I've pictured what it would have been like if I could have been in church with Greg or Josh growing up. I mean, <laughs> I know it's complicated. Been, we would have been kicked out. There would have been a lot. I, I, I would have been like, all right, 
You three get out. Y'all yeah. <laughs> are done. Out. No more. Well, no happened. more games. It happened to Matthew Fox, you know. So I mean, be good company. Good company. <laughs> Thank y'all so much. Games. More than I. More than I can say, really. Thank you, Carmen. Yeah, for it's sure. Been a real and, gift. Yes. And listeners, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us today. We'll be sure to link uh, Practice of the Presence. And um, also, I can link the Cloud of Unknowing as well, because that was a, another fantastic translation. Uh, actually, I have, so I have like this big version, and then they also did like a pocket version. I have both of them, because <laughs> it's fucking awesome. Really? That's but, cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So thank you, and uh, listeners. I, I, like I, I never know how to shut down podcasts. We'll say peace, peace and love. Peace.